A heads up, the following program contains some salty language and references to sex. Valentine's Day just passed us by. Love it or hate it, it's a time of year when some of the most classic tropes about romance and gender are on display. The cards, the flowers, the chocolate, the expensive dinners. If you're single, maybe you got together in a group with your single friends. Or maybe you indulge in an ironic anti-date, like these middle school cartoon characters from the Netflix series Big Mouth. Matthew, a gay boy, and Jesse, a straight girl, get dressed up and go out for Valentine's Day dinner, where they launch into this happy, sad duet. And I never expect you to hold me tight and lock me in your loving gaze. But I know I have a shoulder to cry on. That is, if I were inclined to such pathetic displays. Rules on who gets to celebrate Valentine's Day are changing, of course. Same-sex relationships are gaining support and respect in the U.S. According to Pew Research data, in 2017, 62% of Americans supported same-sex marriage, up from only 37% in 2007. Interestingly, only about half of U.S. adults are married. That's down from a peak of 72% in 1960. Americans are more divided on what determines a person's sex. Another Pew poll from 2017 asked people whether someone is a man or a woman is determined by their sex at birth or can be different from sex at birth. 54% said it's determined by sex at birth, and 44% said it can be different from sex at birth. I don't want to discount the fact that things are still very difficult for cisgendered gay men and women in many parts of the U.S. and the world. But since same-sex marriage was legalized with the Supreme Court here in 2015, it seems like the conversation, at least in the mainstream media, has moved on to who gets to decide whether a boy or a girl. Well, my guest today is here to tell you that there's more out there, a lot more. Being a multi-gender person is super fun and super sexy, and my sex life is amazing. I get to be really creative and What's exciting for me is if you're with me, then you're in a queer experience by definition because I am a queer person and I am a genderqueer person. And so the journey that we're on is a queer journey and the sex that we're having is queer. This is Lady Parts. I'm Andrea Moraskin. In this episode, we're talking about the expansion of gender, sexuality, and love with educator and activist Ariel Vagosin. Ariel says that even if you identify with the gender you were assigned at birth, you could be missing out on some of your human potential. So let's get adventurous. I reached Ariel at home in Berkeley, California. My guest, Ariel Vagosin, is a professional gender inclusivity trainer, workshop facilitator, writer, educator, mentor, performance artist, and consultant. She is the founder of Gender Illumination, a nonprofit that creates healing, mentorship, and ritual for the trans and non-binary communities. He founded a business called Shine that creates clear pathways to inclusion and diversity through trainings, consulting, and policy writing. They also just launched a new business, Poly Excellent, which offers sex coaching, play parties, and performances. And they are proud to be kinky, queer, and gender blended. If you haven't figured it out by now, Ariel loves to play with pronouns. Ariel, welcome to Lady Parts. 
Thanks. It's so great to be here. I'm so excited to be on the show. It's so great to have you. So I wanted to start by talking about gender and just putting out the question, how many genders are there and does that even matter? So gender is an endless experience that changes throughout people's lifetimes and is a really expansive and profound experience. And the reality of gender is the way we do it right now is it's a social construct And people, some people have a belief that there is a binary system. I know that there's not a binary system because I identify as non-binary and I use multiple pronouns and I exist as neither a man nor a woman. I am both an in-between and a multiplicity of identities. And I experience that in my body and in my lived experience. And I know that many cultures have always had identities that exist beyond masculine and feminine. And in my particular culture that I come from, I come from a Jewish culture and lineage. In if you look in our Talmudic texts, we actually have six genders. So from the beginning, I think it's important for people to understand that gender is different depending on whose culture you're talking about. It's a societal construct. So based on whose culture and what society you're talking about, gender looks different. And then there's the actual reality that gender is endless and infinite because we're humans and we have the potential to be expansive. Why do you switch around pronouns? You could just go with they. So why also use he and she and and kind of cycle them around? So they is a pronoun that a lot of people use who identify as non-binary or genderqueer or who, who feel that that they are neither male nor female or maybe both. They, um, you know, some people also use the pronoun Z. There's actually a lot of gender neutral pronouns that exist. The one that's becoming most popular happens to be they, them. I personally use that as well as he and she because I really see myself as both a man and a woman and nothing and everything. And so for me, none of these pronouns really work. Right? I don't feel connected to he or she or they or them. So in a way, I've decided I'm just going to be playful with this and take this on and subvert the system and declare that I don't really see myself fitting into any of these pronouns that exist because all these pronouns carry a weight. So when you hear she, you're conjuring up an image in your mind. When you hear he, that's, that's also happening. They, them might also start to become a specific image in people's minds as that pronoun becomes more popular. And I don't actually think that I fit into any of the images that most people are conjuring up in their minds. So for me, it's important to be playful with it. I also feel that that is my my resistance to to a gender construct that doesn't work for who I am. Tell me about your evolution of your gender identity, um, you know, from from growing up till now. My own understanding of gender has shifted a lot. When I was a young person, I grew up in New York. I grew up in Long Island. And where I grew up, there really, you know, I didn't have any role models. There was no conversation about, when I say I didn't have any role models, I mean around gender. I had lots of amazing role models when it came to social justice and activism. I had a ton of really powerhouse, amazing role models, including my parents when it comes to social justice and activism. But when I say I didn't have any role models around gender, I mean, there were no people in my community that identified as genderqueer or non-binary or trans. So that was not visible to me as a young person. Those words were also not 
active words, right? Like when I was growing up, the word genderqueer really didn't exist. And that's my identity right now. So it's very interesting to, to have this realization that there was no, literally there was no language for the identity that I am when I was a child. And I work with youth now, I work with teenagers, and it's really beautiful to see the multiplicity of language that they have around gender and the way that they're able to live their identities, talk about their identities in such a different way. I didn't have access to any of that. I really think for you to be true in your identity and for you to be able to fully express yourself, you need community, you need a language, you need a population of people that that can be with you in the experience. And so I didn't have that as a child. So, you know, my my view, my whole framework was pretty limited around gender. I'm I'm actually very curious what it would be like for all of us if we were just given the human potential to 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 be and shape ourselves and not be confined by gender roles and boxes. I'm so curious what my life would have become if if that was how we were raised. The same is actually true for my my understanding of my sexuality. I identify as a queer person and when I was a youth, I there was no I did not know anybody else that identified as queer. I didn't even know that that was a thing, right? So even if I was experiencing my sexuality or being attracted to multiple genders as a young person, I didn't know that that was an actual thing I could be. I just knew it's been very powerful for me to find community. It's been amazing to discover other non-binary people other people that are living outside of the gender paradigm that 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 is the dominant culture and now to also be able to teach people and to facilitate workshops and to facilitate trainings has been such a wonderful experience when you were a young person and you were you were having feelings outside of a gender binary um and feelings of that you were attracted to different genders like was that something that you had caution or were afraid to act on and then did you have like a testing the waters period where you were like will I be accepted if I express myself outside of these these lines I think what's interesting as a young person is a lot of the expression was stifled because there was no way to even express it. It just wasn't an option, right? It's not, it's, it, it was almost like, if you think this doesn't exist, if you've never seen anyone else doing it, how do you know it's a real thing? How do you know that that's a possibility in your life? At some point, um, I, I did start just making changes, right? Like I have a distinct memory of like, stopping shaving right being like this is a thing that doesn't work for me this is not what I'm doing and of course there are people that made fun of that and of course that's a real reality that's like you know other people I think are experiencing high levels of violence and it's important to talk about that a lot of people's youth experience is there's bullying and violence and actual physical threats that people experience and I definitely think in my childhood there was more around emotional threat than physical threat in terms of my expression of gender. And I will say, I think this gets into how misogyny plays out in the U.S., which is that uh, it's very acceptable, you know, there's an acceptance level for people who are assigned to be girls or women. If that category as a youth is dressing more masculine, there there's more acceptance for that than if you are assigned male at birth and you are dressing more feminine, there is a lot less acceptance for that. And there's a lot higher rate of violence 
that people experience. And that really gets into how how people are experiencing misogyny and sexism. So I, I want to ex- understand the concept of, of gender expansiveness. I mean, I understand languaging and I understand, you know, it's all about respect. But gender expansiveness, is that kind of something beyond... Uh, beyond language and beyond labels, you know what I mean? So gender expansiveness benefits everyone, whether you're trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, whether you're a cisgendered person, whatever you identify as and whatever your label is, the concept of gender expansion benefits everybody. And the work that I do, which is creating spaces of gender expansion, benefits everybody. And I mean this from your workplace, to your home life, to wherever you go to have fun or whatever you do to to worship, all of this is benefited by the concept of gender expansion because what it is doing is creating more human potential, more potential for people to express their full identities, more potential for people to live broader and fuller lives, and more potential for people to be present and in their own bodies and to really understand who they are in the world and understand that their potential is actually limitless and that there's a lot more available when we get expansive. And so what that looks like, you know, when I do trainings around inclusivity and trainings that teach people vocabulary, what is the benefit for a cisgendered person? Cisgendered, just so people who are listening understands what this means, a cisgendered person is that the gender that they were assigned at birth is the gender that they currently identify with. And so the benefit to a cisgendered person is that they also get to, to really learn more about their own identity, right? Like there's so much within the category of cis and there's so much expansion that can happen. And there's so many ways that cisgendered people have been limited or or forced into gender roles that might not actually fit them, right? Or forced to look a, a certain way or behave a certain way or impacted by sexism or misogyny. And when I teach trainings about inclusivity and teach trainings about gender expansion, it gives cisgendered people also a new set of tools in their own life. It gives them the ability to have more freedom, to have more liberation. So the work that I'm doing, yes, it creates safer spaces for trans and non-binary people because this is the marginalized and targeted community. And it also creates more liberation and more understanding and more of an embodied lived experience for cisgendered people as well. Could you describe an exercise that you usually do in a gender expansiveness workshop? So, my favorite kind of exercises are actually really in- engaging, interactive, and fun activities. When you come to a training that I teach or a workshop that I teach, you will be moving, you will be up, you will be engaged, you will actually be living an embodied experience. I think that the way we learn best is through experiential education, which means that you are actually doing the experience that you're learning. And this can work for people of, of you know, all abilities. I just want to be clear, right? Like even if you're sitting in, in, down doing the activity, there's still some level of body engagement or movement that will happen because gender plays out and lives in our body. And the experience of gender oppression is an embodied experience and that pain actually lives inside of us so the work that I do is is also about addressing that and understanding how that affects us and how that affects our our lives 
you know, we do a lot of icebreakers. I do a lot of icebreakers, which if you've ever been to summer camp or if you have ever um, been on any kind of retreat, you might have played an icebreaker. And those kinds of those kinds of icebreakers are very simple. Oftentimes they're just uh, more about fun and more about getting to hear people share little tidbits about their life. One of the tools that I also use in my workshops often is theater of the oppressed. And one of the things that we do a lot of times is like a snapshot. It's called like a snapshot photo. And so you actually have people getting into, like when you think about a selfie or you think about being in a museum and seeing an actual still picture or an image. So I will actually have people get up and put themselves in an image to address what we're talking about or learning about. So specifically when I'm you know, teaching people about oppression or vocabulary or shifting a culture, I'll actually have people get up and like put that into their bodies and make an actual, um, an actual image of that. I wonder if you could tell me about a time where like you were maybe in a corporate environment and you were really proud of the way that somebody expressed themselves or had had a moment of gender expansion. I some of the most proud moments that I have in corporate trainings are specifically in the tech industry. I've noticed that the tech industry from the beginning has been incredibly dominated by men and also white men. And so anytime that I get to come to the tech industry and show people that the gifts of diversity actually increase production and actually give you more access to ideas and shifting the culture of tech to be more inclusive is so exciting and powerful to me because tech is on the cutting edge and the trainings that I do are on the cutting edge. So for me, this is about creating both gender and racial inclusivity and diversity in the tech spaces. Those are the trainings that I'm the most proud of. When also a lot of the trainings that I do is also about how do you recruit and retain people that are trans or non-binary, people who are not fitting into your dominant culture, right, right now. And the, the, it's amazing to witness tech companies realize the value and the importance of hiring people and retaining people and really giving space for everybody to shine. Coming up after a break, I got Ariel's advice on a classic gender hangup. Good news! Lady Parts has over 1,000 downloads. That's more than double since the last episode. But I'm still really short on information about you, whoever you are. I really hope you're not a robot. How did you find Lady Parts? What topics are you curious about? What perspectives can you offer? What do you think about the episodes? What do you want more or less of? No pressure, but Lady Parts has a closed Facebook group where we can talk to each other. You can find the public page at Lady Parts Pod and get to the private group from there. Or click the link in the show notes to go straight to the private group. You can always tweet me at Andrea underscore Moraskin or find me on Instagram at Andrea Moraskin. Maybe I'll even let you slide into my DMs. Or less sexily, you could just email me at ladypartspod at gmail.com. Another way to connect with and support Lady Parts is on Patreon. Thanks to my friend Mercy in Detroit, Michigan for becoming a patron. Mercy's Lady Parts are working hard. She's in her third trimester. I'm so excited for you, Mercy. Thanks also to my Aunt Pearl in Suffer, New York for becoming a patron. 
and for saying in front of my mom that the blowjob joke in episode one wasn't something to get upset about. Go to patreon.com slash ladypartspod to pitch in. This is an otherwise unfunded project and it costs money to keep these interviews sounding crisp. For a contribution of $5 or more per month, you get access to extended cuts of interviews from episode four and on, and I'll thank you on the next episode. I'll also be rolling out some swag like magnets and t-shirts with our fantastic logo in five different colors. So I think I'd be less attached to uh, my like feminine gender expression if I wasn't worried about attracting a male partner because I'm, um, you know, just <laughs> as far as romance goes, really just attracted to males. And I feel like I'm supposed to be like Maria in West Side Story. Like, I feel pretty. And this is the model for heterosexual womanhood. So how do you work with people around the fear of I won't be desired if I don't conform to a gender normative appearance? This is an amazing question. I love this question because you're getting into the root of sexism, right? Why do you have this desire? Why are you trying to make your body exist to, to please a man? Is that, are men doing that for women? Is that, you know, is that, is the same level of scrutiny happening for men? I mean, is the same level of body scrutiny happening? We know that women have been told, you know, women are raised to have body shame, to have a lack of body positivity. You know, there's so much negativity around big bodied people or large women or fat women there's so much negativity that's given over there's so much negativity around anybody that's that's not doing femininity in a very stereotypical way right so I think it's so important to push against this and literally break free from this because your existence you know, if you're if you're saying you're a cisgendered woman, which is I, I think that's what you're saying, and if, if that's how you're identifying, then your existence should not be based on how a, a man is perceiving you, right? You should be able to be like, cool, I identify as a cisgender woman. I'm gonna live that to my fullest, my understanding of this identity. I'm gonna love my body, understand that my body's beautiful and powerful and awesome and be shame-free and be beautiful exactly how you are, whatever that is, whether that's conforming to what people stereotypically think a woman should be or whether you're doing it differently. The point is that I want to give you the empowerment and all people the empowerment to to live in a way that's true to themselves. So if you're if you're stuck in this paradigm of I'm just trying to look a certain way or be pleasing, make my personality, make my body fit into a mold that's going to be desirable to a man, that's we got to move past that, right? That's not that's not healthy. That's not a healthy mindset. So yeah, I, I, attracted, right? I get like, that. But like I but I want but I want love and like I want partnership. And and I would say, do you want to be loved for who you really are? So if we're putting on an identity that's not actually us, if you're like, I'm wearing this makeup or or I'm, I'm doing my hair a certain way, but that's not actually me, then the question is, are you attracting the right people, right? There's nothing wrong with wearing makeup. Makeup could be awesome. Doing your hair a certain way could be awesome. Like, don't be, like, I just want to be clear that whatever people view as how they want to be in the world is is what they should be doing, right? Like, I think, to me, real feminism is being like, there is a space for 
people to wear makeup and shave their legs and a space for people to be completely modest and a space for people to be completely naked and a space for people to have hairy legs. Like feminism is all of that and inclusivity, a real welcoming of like um, women to be whatever they want to be. And also I'm consistently questioning what is the category of woman anyway? Like I'm consistently like there's no binary, there's so much expansiveness. And what I'm saying is, if there's a lot of pressure, and I think there is real pressure, not just around love, I think there's economic pressure. I think we all experience this pressure to look, behave, and be a certain way in order to advance in society, in order to, we're told we have to look and be a certain way to advance economically and also to receive love. And That's my whole point true. is, let's let's challenge that together, right? Let's really do this and, and challenge it together because- you know, are you really going to want to be in a partnership with someone that's like, I expect you to wear makeup, to look pretty in a certain way, to to have a perfect a body that is quote unquote perfect. And who's whose understanding of what perfect is anyway, right? I think it would be way more powerful for you to perform gender, right? The performance of gender for you to perform in a way that matches who you are. And then find somebody that loves you for exactly that. That is a way stronger, more powerful relationship than somebody that's like loving you for something that you're not. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, what were you going to say? I would say this is a really interesting question about knowing who you are. And I think it it ties in, and I was going to bring up this up later with um, with the idea of polyamory, like how important it is to is it to have the self love and self confidence to be able to extend yourself in these ways that you do? Like, was this something that you had to kind of like build up this well of self love? S- self love and self confidence is incredibly important and something that I coach people on and mentor people on, and and that kind of work is is not a one off experience, right? People come to me and we'll be coaching for a year. We'll be coaching for a few years or a few months, depending on what the person needs and where they're where they are in life and what they're living through. And I have a lot of compassion because it's it's understandable that people lack self confidence and it's understandable that people lack self love. We're given a lot of intense messages. We live in a society that says really terrible things that is really oppressive. We live in a society that's very sexist, a society that's transphobic, a society that's homophobic. It's not surprising that people that carry marginalized identities often have a lower self-esteem or have a harder time loving themselves. You mentioned earlier that you work with high school kids and that these students are talking about gendered in a, in a different way than, you know, in high school when you were growing up. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, how they're talking oh, yeah. about and expressing oh my their gosh. gender? It's, it's the best, most amazing thing ever. So um, I was working in Oakland at a program called Midrashah, which is a really awesome after-school Jewish program, Jewish cultural education. And my high school students that I work with in Oakland, I, I was planning to do, you know, whenever I do an opening circle, I always ask people their names and pronouns, and I was planning on doing that. And before I even got to say that, my students said to me, let's do an opening circle where we share our names and pronouns. And one of the students said, I identify as a demigirl. And I'm like, this is amazing. That. That that was not in my world. We didn't we didn't have that, right? What is so a demi girl? I am embarrassed to say that I don't know. Um, so I I actually that was a new term for me too, and it's interesting <laughs> because I'm I'm more familiar. You're right? a pro. I, this is 
This is this, right. So even this is the thing that I want to be clear about. Even those of us that have been doing this for a long time, I've been, you know, I've been an inclusivity and diversity expert for 18 years. And what's important is that we stay up under our field, right? Is that we we realize that the landscape of vocabulary is constantly changing and shifting. And you know, if you're if you're going to go back in time to when I was in high school, these words didn't exist. Nobody was saying the word demi girl. Nobody was saying the word um, any of these words, genderqueer, non-binary, right? They didn't. We didn't. My whole point is that as we get to be more out, as trans community gets to step further out and be our authentic selves, we get to claim our words, right? So one of the things that used to happen is people would put a label on the community versus the community choosing their labels, right? So what I thought was amazing about this student is that this student is picking a label for them that works and defining that label in a specific way. And maybe 10 years from now, one year from now, they'll be even more new vocabulary that hasn't existed. And that's part of evolution and we have to stay current. And this is true. We see this in technology all the time. There, you know, earlier you asked me like, what social media platforms am I on? Well, nobody was asking me that in high school either, but I've managed to change and evolve with the times and understand that there will, there will be new language, right? Like we literally have all these new tech terms. So of course we're gonna have all these new terms around gender also. And in terms of what does Demi Girl mean, I'm going to tell you that this young person, the way they use that is to really say that they are, for them, they identify as like semi-connected to woman identity, but not fully a woman and, and have having some level of um, trans masculine as part of their identity. Is that how, that's how they use the word Demi Girl. And I think to me, it's important to, as new vocabulary comes in, is to really find out, um, what does that mean for you? Because when I say the word non-binary, that might be very different for myself than how someone else uses that word, right? These are, a lot of these terms are umbrella terms. And even in in the terms, there might be multiple ways of living that identity out, right? So I always like to ask people, well, what does that word mean for you? How does that impact your life? So I want to spend some time talking about sexuality. And we'll yeah. to that. What is sacred sexuality? Oh, I love these questions. Okay, so talking about sex and sexuality is one of my favorite things. And sacred sexuality, I just want to be clear, I think all of sex is sacred. And whether you are specifically coming together in a very intentional, ritualized way, or whether you're having a one-night stand, or whether you're at-home masturbating, or whatever you are doing that you find sexy and juicy and sexual, whatever that might be, that is sacred because our bodies are sacred. So to me, sacred sexuality encompasses anything that you do to provide your body or other people's bodies with consensual pleasure, is sacred sexuality. Mm, so can you talk a little bit about rituals that you do or that you teach around sexuality? Yeah, so ritual for me is a way to give meaning to something. And for me, sex connects me to universe. Sex connects me to other beings. It connects me to the earth. And I'm a very earth-based spiritual person. So for me, sex is also a direct connection to sense of belonging to this earth. And the rituals that I like to do or that I teach around this are really about embodiment, about connection, about self-love, and also about being in love with others. 
and that's that's one form of ritual there's there's so many different kinds of ritual that can happen in a sexualized space and for me the whole point is to always be in a way that feels powerful and consensual so i want to congratulate you on starting poly excellent uh that's a pretty new thing how did you get good at polyamory Oh, yeah. This The reason that this is called Poly Excellent is because when I was younger, I would say I was a poly shit show. I hope it's okay to curse on the radio. Oh, yeah. Um, but so it took me a long time to become Poly Excellent. And I think Poly Excellent is actually it's, it's a, a lifetime work, right? Like like I could easily there might be some moments where I slip back out of the concept of excellence and I'm constantly working to be in excellence. So it's not some it's not a. It's not like you arrive and you're done, right? It's not like you all of a sudden get a certificate, like you're poly excellent and the work is over. Actually, poly excellent is a lifetime commitment of work. So so for me, I love the word excellent and excellence. It It's like a striving to be your best self and a striving to be really well and, and really in something. And when I was... I've always been poly and I've always been poly. And again, when you get into this concept of community and the need for community, when I was in high school, there was, I didn't even know the word poly. I just knew that for me, it made sense to love a lot of people, to, to have relationships with multiple people. And I didn't have any way to do that in, in, in a way that was healthy, right? I didn't have communication for that. I just thought that that monogamy was the only way. And if I was doing something different, that I was cheating on people or people were cheating on me. So I went through a lot of years of of not understanding how to communicate well because I didn't I didn't have any role models. And so I had to learn and I started going, I went to numerous different workshops to to really come into my own identity as a poly person. You know, in order for me to be excellent, I actually had to train myself both through workshops, reading and meeting people and getting involved in poly community and having relationships that were really challenging and not being a great communicator and not knowing how to how to talk about jealousy and not knowing how to how to talk about um, having multiple partners, not knowing how to share that with the world. And so I've been on a major journey with this work and launching Poly Excellent is really about where I am at now, which is that I've done so much work that I'm able to now teach and mentor and coach and facilitate workshops and give people the space to explore their own poly identities. Do you want to uh, to tell me about a misadventure on the road to poly excellence? <laughs> oh my gosh, there were so many misadventures. Um, just really the biggest misadventures are, are all around lack of communication. I think of myself in my early 20s and I had zero communication around this. I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, some of the hard things when I was younger was because I wasn't – now I'm able to be out, right? I'm, I'm out to my family as a poly person. I'm out everywhere that I go. So if I have multiple partners and there's an event – I'm going to say my partners need to all my partner, you know, I'm, I'm bringing my partners, right? Or I'm this, this, you know, a lot of times you get a plus one. I, I now know how to advocate to say, well, that's, that's not my lived reality, right? But when I was in my early 20s, there was tons of mishaps, like who gets invited home for the holidays? I mean, that causes a ton of jealousy if you're picking one partner over your other partners. 
and what's the reasoning or the logic and how are you picking that person? And that can feel really hurtful. And I definitely um, made mistakes like that when I was younger because I didn't know how to talk about being poly. I didn't know how to how to state my needs or ask my, you know, my family or my community to say, um, I don't just have one partner. I have more than one partner. Can I, can I bring them both home for the holidays? Can I bring all three of them home? You know, um, so those were some of the, the mistakes in terms of the outward facing experiences. What did your, and, what did your parents say when you asked, can I bring all three of well, them Well, that's home? just the thing. When I was younger, I didn't, right? Um, I will share, share a positive story about that, about what it did look like when, when, when in, in my 30s, I got to bring, you know, got to introduce my parents to, to more than one partner at a time. And that was really great. And uh, at my priestess ordination, I'm an ordained priestess, Kohenet in the Jewish tradition. I had both of my partners there. My Actually, all three of my partners were there. I have a best friend life partner who's platonic. And I had two at the time I was dating two people and both of them were there and their parents were there. Right. So it was like three partners and their parents and my parents. And we're all here and we're all together. And this is the poly dream that that I've always wanted. And that that took a long time to attain. Right. Um, I don't know that I had the vocabulary to ask for that when I was younger. And part of that was just a lack of community. And I've really built a strong, amazing poly community where I, I have the resources to do that. And I want to be able to give back. I want to be able to help poly people and poly people who who want to share with their parents um i actually wrote an article about this recently about coming home for the holidays how best to negotiate with your parents and with your partners how to make that feel comfortable and great for everybody often we as poly people might feel alone because we're not the dominant culture because we're not represented in media and what i'm trying to do is give people the space to be their fullest self and to share that fullest self with the world After a break, sex as a genderqueer person and working towards collective liberation. This is the point in the show where I recommend some other podcasts that I love and episodes that I think complement this one. First up is Scene on Radio. That's Scene spelled S-C-E-N-E from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. For a great story about expanding the limits of gender, listen to Season 3, Episode 9, Be Like You, reported by award-winning journalist Lewis Wallace. Lewis, who was assigned female at birth, transitioned in the direction of maleness. But he didn't want to embrace everything our culture associates with masculinity or give up everything associated with femininity. By the way, Lewis also consulted on this episode of Lady Parts. Also check out The Longest Shortest Time, a parenting podcast that is not just for parents, hosted by the wonderful Andrea Salenzi. I recently listened to episode 180, in which Andrea goes to visit the Polycule, a close-knit group of polyamorous parents somewhere in the American Midwest. Now, if you develop feelings for those other podcasts, it's all good. You can leave ratings and reviews for all of us on the Apple Podcast app. If you don't have an iPhone, you can do so on the regular old desktop version of iTunes or on Stitcher. What is it like for you to navigate your gender identity with sexual partners? Are there challenges or fun things that you feel comfortable talking about? Oh, yeah, it's super fun. Being a multi-gendered person is super fun and super sexy. And my sex life is amazing. I get to be really creative and 
what's exciting for me is if you're with me, then you're in a queer experience by definition because I'm a queer person and I am a genderqueer person. And so the journey that we're on is a queer journey and the sex that we're having is queer. So uh, that's been fun for me because, you know, that that's who I am in the world. And I'm really proud of that. And I'm really proud of that identity and and the fun of that identity. Could you share some basic advice for using a strap on um, yeah. in a penetrative way? I, you know, I'm asking for a friend. Oh, okay. Asking for a friend is great. Asking for yourself is great too. So um, strap-on sex is super fun. I teach workshops on this. And the, you know, the biggest set of advice that, that I want to give is checking in communication and remembering to just consistent checking in. Any Anytime you're having any kind of penetrative sex, really making sure that you've checked in before penetrating, right? Getting that big, enthusiastic, hells yes. And in terms of penetrating, whether you are doing strap-on sex, you know, I think of like, um, obviously you could be penetrating, uh, you know, front hole or back hole, right? Like vagina or anus. Um, people use multiple words for their parts, their body parts, depending on, on how they identify their gender. So some people, you know, I like using the word front hole and back hole just because it's a, a little bit like anybody of any gender can have those. Um, and lubrication is really important, right? In either direction, you want lubrication. So, um, you know, foreplay is really important. Getting people really excited. That's that's always fun and juicy and great. You want it to be juicy. You want it, you want it to be feeling really good. You want the person to really, really, really want your cock before you're entering. So... That's my biggest piece of advice is make sure the person is hungry before you're before you're entering and communicate, check in, ask, ask the person that they're ready. Make sure you get your enthusiastic hells yes. So when I think about your gender identity, Ariel, and the way you express yourself sexually, the adjective that comes to mind, it came up before is is free. What do you think about that? And what are you know, is that adjective work for you or are there other adjectives that you like that you like better? I like the word free because I think it, it sounds like I like liberation. I, I'm, I'm working on my own. I'm working on collective liberation. I think of myself as a liberation advocate for everybody. I want collective liberation for all of us. And I don't think that I don't think I could get liberated unless everyone's liberated. I don't think that, you know, being free actually involves doing social justice work. Right. I don't think that I'm going to have an experience of feeling liberated and free if my if people around me are not liberated and free, right? So I, I actually think it's important to do the work of justice and to do the work of of addressing racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, ableism, ageism, classism, all of it. You have to, you know, my freedom is, is deeply connected to everybody's freedom. I really um, believe that. Since you brought that up, um, and I, I know that anti-oppression and intersectionality is really important for you, um, can you just briefly touch on how intersectionality looks in, in your work? Yeah, I think that everything I do is, is everything is about intersectionality, right? We live multiple identities, right? Nobody is just one thing, right? So I think it's important that we consider the whole person and your whole identity. You're not half of anything, right? You're a whole person and all of your identity comes with you. So your, your ethnicity, your race, your gender, your ability, your class, this is, everything is deeply connected. And, and I can't talk about ending gender oppression without talking about ending racism, 
without talking about ending classism. These things go together. So we're not going to have a liberatory movement where all of a sudden trans and non-binary people are, are accepted unless we're also realizing that Black Lives Matter, unless we're also realizing that white supremacy needs to end. These things are all deeply connected and we need to talk about it. The people that are facing the most violence right now when it comes to gender oppression are trans women of color. And if we're not naming that and talking about that, then we're not actually doing justice work. So when I was preparing, when I was preparing for this interview, I kept thinking about the concepts of attachment and non-attachment in Buddhism. I'm not a Buddhist, but as I understand it, the Buddha taught that suffering comes from attachment, either to the way we want things to be, the way things are, the way we perceive them. And the way to avoid suffering is to detach from the idea of a fixed, unchanging reality. So I want to ask you, Ariel, do you think gender is a kind of cultural attachment? So like you're saying, like, do you think that people are suffering because we've made gender so limited? Is that the question you're asking? You could if you yeah, you could interpret it that way. Here, wait, ask me the question again. If gender is a vast, like you experienced gender as this, uh, I don't remember what was the word you, was the word you used. It's kind of a an unending spectrum, but. I think that mo most people, at least today, don't think about it that way. They think about it as something more fixed, or maybe there are two or three or four categories. So do you think that, that gender in that context of the way that it's um, experienced by, I guess, most people in society is a kind of attachment? I think that we're about to go through another amazing change right like i think that we're we're at a time where society is ripe to realize that gender is a social construct and that we get to to move this construct in a way that's healing and healthy and move it in a direction that gives more of us all of us more freedom and liberation and allows us all to experience our human potential and so i think where we're headed hopefully as a society is into more love more acceptance more openness and that actually benefits everybody and I think what's going to happen is people people are going to become more and more aware, right? This is why gender illumination and shine and poly excellent, this is why I'm doing these projects. This is why this exists is to give people the space to heal, to give people the space to explore, to give people the education that they need to be inclusive and welcoming and to create spaces where we're all seen and safe and nourished. And I actually think this is the world that people are going to want, right? I actually think that this this is, even if you're in a moment right now listening to this podcast and you've just never had thought about this, like let's just say you've really never thought about gender before or how it impacts your own life, the more you think about it, you're going to notice that of course gender impacts your life. All social constructs do. Race, gender, Th these things impact all of us, even if we are in the dominant group, even if we're in the group that gets the most privilege. Um, these these categories affect us and affect our lives. And if we are able to shift, which we will because we have to, that's what survival is. Survival is evolution and shifting and staying current and staying present to the times. And I think where we're at right now is a major evolution and we're stepping into to new times and a new way of, of understanding um, what's possible. And I'm excited to be 
at the forefront. And I'm excited to be a leader in this movement. Well, thank you so much, Ariel. Thank you. Yeah. And people can go and check out my work at shinediversity.com and polyexcellent.com and genderillumination.com. Awesome. And uh, you can also follow Ariel on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Trixie Lamont, their stage name. I want to mention that you don't have to live in the Bay Area to get liberated with Ariel. He also travels to do trainings, and she does long-distance phone and video coaching. And you may be able to find gender expansiveness or polyamory training in your own backyard. I want to take a few minutes to reflect on gender expansion in my own life. In reality, sometimes I like to express myself in a typically feminine way, and sometimes I don't. For about nine years, I took belly dance classes and performed semi-regularly, and I enjoyed that type of very feminine gender expression. I'm pretty good at the hip isolations. I relish the opportunity to purchase a sequin costume. I eventually got a long wig to look more the part, and it did feel like playing a role. I even had a belly dance name, Roxy. It was nice to step outside of myself or into another part of myself. It was also fun to share that extra sexy belly dance self with men I dated or hooked up with. I also really appreciated an experience that I felt like gave me a break from my gender, taking a Tai Chi class. In Tai Chi, you do smooth, relaxing movements that focus on the limbs and do not emphasize the hips or chest. The men and women in my class would all move as one. I felt like I could just be a human being for an hour a week. And that moving in a sort of genderless flow within a group, it actually makes me think about what Ariel said about sacred sexuality. Sex connects me to universe. Sex connects me to other beings. It connects me to the earth. Sex, well, really good sex, Tai Chi, prayer, and these days I do meditation and yoga. These can all be ways of transcending the individual ego. And for me as a woman, that ego is tied up with societal expectations of what a female can be. I'm a woman, but I'm something else too. And I think that's healthy. Lady Parts is produced by me, Andrea Moraskin. Production help this month from Rev Kev Ewing and Abby Madon. I had editorial support from Lewis Wallace. My side of the conversation was recorded at Baobab Tree Studios in lovely New Haven, Connecticut. The Lady Parts logo is by Jamie Squire, and our theme song is by Adam Ragusia. Other music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening.